Three years after the deadly January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, Donald Trump has embraced the cause of the attackers and promised to pardon them if he becomes president again. A new poll says most Republicans are more likely to absolve Trump of responsibility for the insurrection than they were three years ago. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, several hundred pages of court documents have been released in a case brought against the sex trafficker and private financier Jeffrey Epstein. We'll find out what they reveal. And it's the season for respiratory viruses in the U.S. Health officials are expecting a crush of flu and COVID cases. Everybody who is certainly elderly, and not even old elderly, like 60 and older, should get a vaccine for a booster for COVID. Coming up, how to protect yourself from the cooties. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. An investigation is underway into a school shooting outside Des Moines, Iowa this morning. Units, we've got an active shooter situation at Perry High School. We need general. The emergency response warning went out around 7.30 a.m. local time. Police officers arrived at Perry High School within minutes to find multiple people with gunshot wounds. Iowa Public Radio's Natalie Krebs has the latest. According to law enforcement, the shooting happened just after 7.30 in the morning. Local health officials have confirmed multiple patients are being treated at hospitals in Des Moines about 45 minutes away. Dallas County Sheriff Adam Infante declined to release many details. We're still unclear of exactly how many are injured uh, or what the extent of those are, but we're working on that right now. There is no further danger to the public. The community is safe. Infante says the shooting happened before school started, so there were few students and faculty inside the building. For NPR News, I'm Natalie Krebs in Perry, Iowa. Multiple news outlets are now reporting that the suspected shooter is dead, but NPR has not independently verified that, and authorities have not yet publicly confirmed fatalities. A news conference is expected this hour. Remains to be seen if questions about this morning's shooting and gun violence in America will come up at back-to-back town halls. CNN is hosting tonight for two Republicans struggling to defeat former President Donald Trump for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. One of them is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who sparred with a supporter at a town hall in Iowa yesterday when he was told he was going soft on Trump. I think the narrative is this. I think what the media wants is is they want Republican candidates to just kind of like smear him personally and kind of do that. That's just not how I roll. Apparently acknowledging that she may not fare as well as she'd like in the Iowa caucuses next Monday, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is focusing her attention on winning the New Hampshire primary later this month. Recent violence in Iran and Lebanon is escalating. Concerns that the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza is widening. NPR's Jana Raff reports from Beirut. Thousands of people fill the streets of the Lebanese capital today for the funerals of three Hamas commanders killed in a presumed Israeli drone strike on Tuesday. We're walking along the procession and there are three coffins draped in the Palestinian flag and the flags of Hamas. They're being followed by large groups of mostly young men. They're waving flags of Hamas and other Palestinian factions. Gunshots ring out every now and then in celebration, and some people were just throwing rice, which you would throw at a wedding, because they see the deaths of what they consider martyrs now to be at a wedding in paradise. That's NPR's Jana Ruff reporting. It's NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of Harvard's highest governing body says she has no plans to step down following this week's resignation of University President Claudine Gay. Some Harvard donors have called for senior fellow Penny Pritzker to follow Gay's lead and resign. Pritzker led the search committee that selected Gay to lead Harvard. She is expected to lead the search for Gay's replacement as well. New Boston City Council President Ruthie Louis-Jun is calling for more civility on the council. She was sworn in Monday as the body's first-ever Haitian-American leader. Here's WBR's Rob Lane. Louis-Jun is taking charge of a council that's divided between two factions, one more moderate and historically Irish Catholic, and the other mostly non-white and progressive. The last legislative body was marred by rival councillors slinging personal attacks at one another. Louisian tells WBUR's Radio Boston she hopes to end that culture. It doesn't mean that we're not going to uh, disagree because we will. We are a diverse body with diverse opinions. But can we do so with collegiality and with goodwill and always centering the needs of the city of, of residents of the city of Boston? Former council president Ed Flynn made a similar plea for civility at the start of 2023. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. A report from a business resource website shows the number of people who work remotely in Massachusetts has dropped by about 20 percent since the year 2021. According to LLC.org, that's a decrease of 165,000 remote workers, one of the steepest declines in the country. In the city of Boston alone, the number of remote workers has decreased 28 percent in the same time frame. Clear and cold overnight tonight, falling to about 20. Tomorrow could reach the mid-30s, a sunny day. Saturday should bring in the clouds, still dry still in the mid-30s, but then winter arrives later on Saturday. Snowfall and rain together, making for a sloppy mix. Sunday's likely to bring mainly snow. The peak of the storm could be Sunday morning through midday. North and west of routes 128 and 495 could get at least six inches of snow, maybe up to a foot. Should be a rain-snow mix closer to the coastline. Storm should fizzle out before Sunday evening, but it's likely to leave behind a pretty wintry mess. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Donald Trump started his first presidential campaign riding down a golden escalator. This time, his first campaign rally began with a song. Justice for All, featuring President Donald J. Trump and the J6 Choir. J6, as in January 6th, 2021, the insurrection. The song features voices of alleged Capitol rioters in jail, recorded from the jailhouse, singing the Star-Spangled Banner. Three years after the attack on the Capitol, the former president has embraced the rioters, donated money to their supporters, and promised to issue pardons. Trump is also the overwhelming favorite to win the Republican presidential nomination. As NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach reports, the future of the January 6th criminal cases may hinge on the presidential election. Donald Trump calls January 6th defendants patriots and hostages. And he said he'd free them or give them pardons at rallies. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons. He said it in campaign speeches. I will be looking at them very, very seriously for pardons. Very, very seriously. In interviews. And I mean full pardons 
with an apology to, to many an apology. We found that Trump has said he would free or issue pardons for January 6th defendants more than a dozen times, including on social media, where he reposted a message that, quote, the cops should be charged and the protesters should be freed. Trump has said those pardons would come on day one of another Trump presidency. But he's been vague about exactly whom he would pardon, and the Trump campaign did not respond to my questions. Here's Trump on Fox News with Brett Bayer last year. Would you also pardon the people who were convicted of assaulting officers? Well, you also have, uh, no, we'd look at individual cases, but many of those people are very innocent people. They did nothing wrong. That scream is from a police officer being crushed by rioters wielding a stolen police shield on January 6th. The officer's gas mask is ripped off, his mouth bloodied, screaming in pain. That officer's name is Daniel Hodges. I was assaulted many times throughout the day. I was beaten, punched, kicked, pushed, beaten with my own riot baton in the head, crushed with a police shield. Someone tried to gouge out one of my eyes. Hodges is among the 140 police officers who were injured on January 6th. He said he could only speak for himself, not his police department but he feels a moral obligation to keep talking about January 6th to counter the lies from Trump and his supporters. Hodges' physical injuries have healed, but his heart still races when he thinks about that day. It doesn't help that he gets death threats when he talks about January 6th or testifies in court. There was uh, people sending me like explicit snuff of suicides. and Like videos of people killing themselves. They yeah, yeah. To. And like pictures of my head pasted on top of instructions for how to strangle yourself. At times, Trump has signaled he would free every January 6th defendant, which would include those convicted of assaulting police. He has also not ruled out pardoning the leader of the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, who was convicted of seditious conspiracy and sentenced to 22 years in prison. Trump heading into the 2024 election has decided to go all in as the pro-January 6th candidate. This is Tom Jocelyn. He's a counterterrorism expert, and he worked as a senior staffer with the January 6th Select Committee in Congress. He's gone full steam ahead in praising and, in his own way, endorsing the January 6th rioters and extremists who attacked the Capitol. The director of the FBI, who was appointed by Trump, called January 6th an act of domestic terrorism. And the attack led to the largest FBI investigation in American history. Now, three years later, around 900 people have pleaded guilty or been convicted at trial of crimes from that day, from simply breaching the building to assaulting police, bringing guns onto Capitol grounds, and seditious conspiracy. If Trump wins, he could use the pardon power to end ongoing prosecutions in these cases, free people from prison, and restore gun rights to hundreds of rioters convicted of felonies. Do you think Trump issuing these pardons could actually encourage further political violence? Certainly, by pardoning an untold number of people who committed violent acts, the likelihood of more violence certainly goes up. Special counsel Jack Smith has been watching Trump's comments and wants to use Trump's support for the rioters against him in court. Smith has argued that Trump's words show that he intended to use illegal means to overturn the 2020 election. Trump is fighting the charges, and it's unclear when that trial will move forward. If Trump wins this year's election, he has promised to use the government to get revenge on his political enemies and to act as a, quote, dictator on his first day in office. And legally, Congress and the courts have almost no way to stop him from issuing pardons. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a historian with New York University. She says the pardon power has been used by strongmen leaders throughout modern history to enable political violence. 
The purpose of the pardon is both to make people feel they're going to get away with past crimes, but just as scary is that it's designed to make future violence more possible because people will feel they won't pay any consequences. President Biden has condemned Trump's promise as a threat to democracy. Here he is at a rally in 2022. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. You can't support law enforcement and call the mob that attacked the police in January 6th in the United States Capitol patriots. But Trump's message has gained traction among Republican voters, especially in far-right media where defendants are called political prisoners. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Outside the D.C. jail, where many of the alleged rioters have been detained, supporters gather almost every night. With liberty and justice for all. The group reads names of the people currently locked up. It's a list that includes people charged with assaulting police with a deadly weapon and seditious conspiracy. Regardless of the charges, this group chants hero after each name. Andrew Taki, Enrique Tarrio, Curtis Tate, George Tenney. The gathering is just around a dozen people, but they have influence. Trump himself actually called into the vigil back in 2022. One of the men currently inside the D.C. jail is Jacob Lang. Mind if I record our conversation? Yes, no problem. Okay, great. I'm recording. Uh, Lang has been awaiting trial for years on charges that he attacked officers with a bat and stolen police shield. He's pleaded not guilty and has become a cause celeb in right-wing media. Even after more than two years in jail, Lang is all in on Trump, and he likes Trump's pledge to issue pardons. Well, it's a beautiful pledge. Um, I think it, but he said he wants Trump to commit to a blanket pardon, the kind that would free him, too. No Jan 6 are left behind. Bring us all home, Donald Trump. Bring us all home. For Officer Daniel Hodges, a blanket pardon would mean freeing the men convicted of assaulting him. So I asked him what he thought about Trump's promise. I mean, I hope some people would get pardoned and think, well, that was close. I'm going to stay as far away from, you know, inflammatory politics as I can from now on. But I think that typically a lack of consequences emboldens criminals. I see that in the community that I police. Since January 6th, some defendants have expressed remorse for their actions and denounced Trump. Others have gone deeper into white nationalism, conspiracy theories, and extremism. One defendant told me that when the FBI arrested him for storming the Capitol, they made an enemy. When a jury announced his guilty verdict, he yelled, this is how you radicalize people. For now, he's still in jail. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. About 40 million adults in the U.S. have trouble hearing, including me. But most of them do not use hearing aids. This means they're missing out on more than just good hearing. They may also be putting themselves at heightened risk of everything from depression to dementia. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports on surprising new research that finds wearing hearing aids may even boost longevity. Dr. Janet Choi was born with hearing loss, but for years she resisted wearing hearing aids because her hearing was very good in one ear. Then, when she became a surgeon, she realized she was missing out. In the operating room doing surgery sometimes, if someone talks to me on the left side when there are a lot of background noise, I usually wouldn't respond because I didn't hear it. And people thought that I was just ignoring them, which was actually not true. I just didn't hear them. Choi was well aware of the risks associated with hearing loss, and she knew the evidence was piling up. Social isolation, depression, also decreased physical activity. And now there have been a lot of studies talking about dementia. With so much at stake, Choi has become a regular user of her hearing aids. And she's also at the forefront of new research 
On the heels of a study showing that the use of hearing aids may help stave off cognitive decline, she and her collaborators wanted to know if hearing aids may also be linked to a longer lifespan. To evaluate this, they tracked the status of nearly 1,900 adults who'd been shown to have hearing loss during screenings and who had tracked their use of hearing aids. What they found, she says, was surprising. One thing that we were surprised was that the group of patients who have hearing loss and report that they were using hearing aids regularly had 24% lower risks of mortality compared to those groups who never used hearing aids. Meaning they were significantly less likely to die prematurely. Prior studies have shown that hearing loss, if untreated, is associated with multiple health problems. And this adds to the evidence that restoring hearing is beneficial. The study does not prove cause and effect. It could be that people who become regular users of hearing aids are more likely to stave off isolation and stay more active, which could explain the longevity boost. Given the benefits, Choi says it's stunning how few people wear hearing aids regularly. In our study, we found that the rates of hearing aid use was about 12%. And she says another striking finding is that the people in the study who had hearing aids but did not use them regularly were as likely to die prematurely as the never users, pointing to the importance of habitual use. She recommends new users wear them every day for 30 consecutive days to acclimate. Hearing loss, such as invisible problem and it happens gradually that it takes time for you to get used to hearing aids and then get benefit from it. So Choi says if you have hearing aids sitting in the back of your drawer, not using them due to stigma or maybe just the annoyance of getting used to them, try them again. Alison Aubrey, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the Hershey Company is being sued for their Reese's Holiday Candies at issue, why there's no cute little face on the peanut butter cups. Also in about 25 minutes, we'll remember an evangelist for the art of tap dancing. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. The Dow picked up just a tiny percent today. The S&P and NASDAQ wound up on the downside. S&P fell more than three-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ closed lower for a fifth day. It was down more than a half percent. Cambridge Biotech Omega Therapeutics is teaming up with the Danish pharmaceutical giant Novo Nordisk. The project involves using the body's own mechanisms to boost metabolism to help treat obesity. The deal is worth up to $532 million. Omega's share is closed more than 94% higher on the news today. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, where college-age students and high school grads can experience a unique mixture of friendship, deep personal growth, and fun. Improve confidence while gaining concrete academic and life skills and practicing healthy habits. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. If you haven't heard, there's snow in the forecast for the weekend. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce tells us that this will not be a major snowstorm for Boston, but it will have an impact. 
Snow arrives Saturday night, a few snow showers possible ahead of that. The height of the storm Sunday morning through midday before everything tapers off the second half of Sunday as the storm pulls away. We'll see a mix with and change over to rain in the city of Boston and at the coast. The rain snow line likely to set up somewhere along the 128 or 495 belt. North and west of that, the highest totals around or more than six inches possible. Less than that, more like a few inches or less closer to the coast. Mainly rain event on the South Shore and Cape, some wind gusts to 40 miles per hour at the coast. Biggest impacts, tough travel Sunday and isolated outages where the heaviest snow falls. And meantime, tonight should be clear and cold. Lows about 20. Sunshine tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid-30s. 40 now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, a new original drama following the rise of a Hollywood icon. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Bill Clinton likes them young. That is just one of many allegations contained in several hundred pages of recently released court documents in a case brought against the sex trafficker and private financier Jeffrey Epstein. One of Epstein's victims says he made those remarks about the former president to her. The documents were unsealed late yesterday in a lawsuit brought by one of those victims. Besides former President Clinton, who has not been accused of anything and who denies knowledge of Epstein's illegal activities, the documents include the names of dozens of powerful men with alleged connections to Epstein. Donald Trump, magician David Copperfield, Prince Andrew, and former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak are also named. Most of those publicly named, many of whom are already known to have links to Epstein, have denied any wrongdoing or knowledge of Epstein's criminal activities. Epstein died by suicide in prison in 2019. I'm joined now by investigative journalist and author Julie K. Brown. Her reporting for the Miami Herald in 2017 and 2018 led to more charges for Epstein and identified nearly 80 of his victims. And before we begin, I want to make something clear. The fact that people were named in these documents doesn't mean any of them face allegations or evidence of wrongdoing. They are identified as having social connections to Jeffrey Epstein. Julie K. Brown, joins me now. Welcome. Thank you. Have you been in touch with any of Epstein's victims? And do you know at all how they're feeling in this moment with this latest release? Well, I know that they want the truth to come out. Um, They feel that this has been um, hidden for too long. And certainly part of the uh, mechanism in our system that has hidden a lot of what has transpired is our court system. I mean, there are people out there, Julie, who are probably saying, we already know this. There is not anything new here. But I gather that you would argue that it's important for these documents to be public, that it's important for people to see what is in it. Why is that? Well, you know, define new. No, there's nothing in here that says so-and-so committed a crime or so-and-so actually had sex with a certain person. But these are people that clearly knew what Jeffrey Epstein was doing. They were either socially connected with him 
in in a couple of cases we know of people that even talked openly about the fact that they knew Epstein was recruiting girls. Now, does that mean that they were guilty of anything? No. But I think to dismiss this because there's nothing salacious or criminal in it is really short-sighted. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that this case and Epstein's convictions stemmed from him victimizing young girls, children. But his crimes and these documents are also about relationships among rich and powerful people in our society. Can you explain how those very relationships may have helped him prey on his victims? He was a bit of a braggart. I mean, we suspect that he may not have known some of the people that he claimed uh, to these girls that he knew. He would say, for example, I just got off the phone with Michael Jackson or whoever. I'm just using that as an example. He would tell these girls that. And then, of course, they would be in his mansions and they would see photographs of him with world leaders and famous people. So he took advantage of that in order to if if nothing else, to intimidate these girls. And that's how he used his status. And anyone that socialized with him and who had dinners with him or visited his islands or went on his airplane had to see him with some of these girls and young women and had to see the way that he operated. We have been following the release of these new documents and there are still more to come. Julie, can you help us look ahead to what might be coming out in the future? This has all been a mystery even to us because they've been sealed for so long. So we really don't know for certain. But one thing that we know from what's been released so far is that these documents do tell a story. They tell a story of a man who had influence, who had power, who had money, and he was able to use all those things to abuse hundreds of girls. And we need to to really examine how that happened and why it happened. And because unless we do that, um, these kinds of cases, these the sex trafficking that happened here is going to continue to happen. As we mentioned, you have been covering this story for years. What do you think the legacy of the story of Jeffrey Epstein is? Well, I hope the legacy is that people don't accept this kind of justice in America, that, that rich people powerful people, wealthy people should not get special treatment. You know, people who are vulnerable and who don't have a voice in our system are often prosecuted um, more fully and rigorously than people who have power and money. And that really is something that this story is an example of. And I think that, you know, we all have to question how that happens and why it happens and our system needs to change. Miami Herald investigative journalist and author Julie K. Brown. She is the author of Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein story. Julie, thank you. Thank you. A Florida woman is suing the Hershey Company for what she says is false advertising. The reason? On the outside of a seasonal package, a peanut butter cup with a jack-o'-lantern face. But on the inside... But this is a trick. This is not a treat. I thought it would have a face on it. It's just a chocolate blob. (laughs) Two videos of disappointed consumers that the lawsuit cites. The candies range in shape depending on the holiday. Ghosts, bats, and pumpkins are the Halloween varieties. But some consumers do not see the resemblance. Does this look like a pumpkin to you? 
Cynthia Kelly, who brought the class action lawsuit, bought the, quote, cute-looking pumpkin peanut butter cups in October, believing that the candy in question would match the outside. She is seeking at least $5 million in damages. Reese's Peanut Butter Pumpkins launched nationally in 1993, but Reese's did not always include the images that you see on packages today. The lawsuit states, quote, in order to boost sales and revenues of the products, Hershey's changed the packaging for the products to include the detailed carvings within the last two to three years. And we reached out to Hershey, who wrote back that they, quote, don't comment on pending litigation. Anthony Russo Jr. is the lawyer representing Kelly in this case. This is just a reality check for these corporations is, hey, you know, you are going to give the consumers what they ask for, whether it's, you know, an etching on a, on a Reese's peanut butter cup or it's, you know, it's a non-defective home that you're living in with your family's living in. His firm is also representing the plaintiffs in a class action suit against Burger King. That one claims the company uses misleading advertising to represent their food items as larger than they are. He says his firm receives around 100 calls a month for these types of cases. Some are a little wacky, to be honest with you. We probably take, you know, less than 1%. It is yet to be determined if this case against Hershey will make it past a judge. But even if the candies aren't as cute as they look on that packaging, most people agree they still taste pretty good. And the most annoying thing about this is it's quite nice. It's a nice peanut butter little chocolate bar snack. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes, respiratory illnesses are on the rise after the holidays. Coming up, health experts share advice on how to navigate what's typically the peak respiratory virus season. In the forecast, clear and cold tonight, down around 20 degrees. Tomorrow could reach the mid-30s, a sunny day. Then for Saturday, lots of clouds around temperatures in the mid-30s. And then wintry weather arrives for the weekend. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. I'm Scott Tong. A new study suggests that when we do our own research, we're more likely to be led to sources backing false claims. Researchers say this could explain why people are more likely to believe fake news, disinformation, or conspiracy theories. The dangers of how we search, next time here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Iowa, a shooting at Perry High School, some 40 miles from Des Moines today, left at least one sixth grader dead, five other people hospitalized. Mitch Morvette with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation says police found the shooter with an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound. He's also dead. The shooter has been identified as 17-year-old Dylan Butler, a student at Perry High School. Butler was armed with a pump action shotgun and a small caliber handgun. Butler also made a number of social media posts in and around the time of the shooting. Mordvet says police also found an IED inside the school. There's no word on a motive. 
U.S. Customs and Border Protection reopened operations at four ports of entry at the southern border today in Texas, Arizona, and California. Texas Public Radio's Marion Navarro has more on the resumption of vehicle processing at a bridge in Eagle Pass, Texas. The reopening of International Bridge 1 comes a little more than a month after it was shut down following an ongoing influx of migrant crossings. CBP redirected personnel away from the Eagle Pass crossing in order to help Border Patrol process migrants, causing long delays at the remaining bridge. Eagle Pass has been the epicenter of ongoing debates over immigration policy and Texas Governor Greg Abbott's border security initiative, Operation Lone Star. House Speaker Mike Johnson visited the city Wednesday and called for the resumption of immigration policies backed by former President Donald Trump. I'm Marian Navarro in San Antonio. Applications for first-time jobless claims fell last week. The Labor Department says applications for unemployment benefits fell to a seasonally adjusted 202,000, down 18,000 from the week before. The less volatile four-week moving average fell by 4,700 to 207,000. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The National Weather Service has issued a warning of a wet snowfall with strong winds for this weekend's pending storm. It's issued to winter storm watch north and west of Boston from Saturday afternoon through Sunday night. Outside the I-95 corridor, there could be 6 to 12 inches of snow, maybe less than 6 inches in greater Boston, but it should be a rain-soaked snow with winds as high as 40 miles per hour. That could lead to power outages and dangerous driving conditions on Sunday. Today, the Massachusetts Senate has unanimously approved a bill to strengthen a warranty law on the purchase of a wheelchair. But as WBR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, some vendors who supply wheelchairs say the measure doesn't address everything at issue. When a wheelchair breaks, a repair can take months. The legislation would set time frames for how quickly a broken chair must be assessed and a loaner provided. And it would require a chair's warranty to be at least two years. I think it's absolutely huge. Lynn Horan is a wheelchair user in Holyoke. It puts the companies on notice that the state governments are watching. But the bill received criticism from some wheelchair manufacturers and vendors who say it fails to address issues like funding, preventive maintenance, and reimbursement for repair costs. The House has yet to schedule a vote on the corresponding bill. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. State police say an early morning accident in Dorchester that killed two young people involved a stolen car. The victims were among four teenage boys. Police say that a third person's in grave condition. The car rolled over on Morrissey Boulevard. Investigators believe the driver had been speeding. And a former Stoneham police sergeant today was sentenced to two years probation after he was convicted of wire fraud last fall. Federal prosecutors say Robert Kennedy defrauded three landlords by concealing his history of being evicted. They also say he used a relative's credit report to get a lease and then never paid the rent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. Should be cold tonight, down around 20 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, in the mid-30s tops. The first full weekend of the year starts up kind of boring, with cloudy skies on Saturday, and then things change. A winter storm watch is in effect from Saturday afternoon through late on Sunday. The first plowable snow of the season comes 
Saturday night, some of it mixing with rain, especially inside the uh, uh, 128-495 belt. Then on Sunday, areas well north and west of Boston could get 6 to 12 inches of wet snow, more rain-snow mix around greater Boston, amounting to about 6 inches or less. The toughest travel could be Sunday, with high winds and the chance of power outages. The storm should blow out and leave us with a sunny day for Monday. This is WBUR, 40 degrees at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For people all over the world looking to migrate to the U.S., Nicaragua has become a popular first stop. The Central American country has relatively lax visa rules, and flying directly there means people trying to head north can forego the dangerous jungle trek through the Darien Gap up to the U.S. border. Well, this setup is raising questions over Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega's motives, whether he has weaponized the country's immigration regulations as a way at digging at the Biden administration and protesting sanctions. Among those raising questions is our next guest. Manuel Orozco is director of the Inter-American Dialogue. Welcome. Thank you. Explain the changes, if you would, that President Ortega has made to his country's visa requirements. When, when did this begin? The first time he started making the changes was during the elimination of visa restrictions for Cubans in November 2021. From that point on, um, the government started to release a number of uh, regulations for other countries, Haiti included, as well as other Latin American countries, and eventually to several Asian and African nations. And that includes Indians, Uzbekistanis, uh, people from Mauritania and Senegal. Mm. Okay, so how does President Ortega explain the changes to his country's visa rules and and, and, uh, allowing people to do this? Why does he say it's a good idea? Well, he has the motive, the opportunity, and the means. The motive is that Ortega has had historically a deep hatred on the United States, defines to be an evil empire that needs to be dealt with. And the opportunity was the huge migration crisis that has been taking place from predominantly fragile states. And the the means was to utilize the airport for the passing of passengers from different nationalities. So his justification has been both an ideological one, but also an opportunistic, because there is money to be made on each flight that arrives and the fees that they charge to the airlines and the airport taxes that they charge to every individual that comes into the country. So tell me how this how this works. These are chartered flights being organized into Nicaragua. How, how are they arranged? How much do they cost? Correctly. What Nicaragua did was to hire a private company to organize contracts with chartered flight companies across uh, Asia, Europe, Africa. And with that, there are landing fees that you have to pay. There are airport taxes that every individual has to pay. And uh, it ranges from 100 to $200 per person. 
But when we're talking about economies of scale, then it becomes a multi-million dollar operation. So based on your study and analysis of this, is Ortega's strategy working? Has he weaponized his country's immigration rules uh, in a way that, that is digging at the Biden administration? Well, if, you, if we put it in, in a statistical terms, with the expulsion of 600,000 Nicaraguans due to repression that moved to the United States, plus at least 150,000 uh, people from other nationalities, Nicaragua is responsible for at least 10% of all the migration that has arrived into the Mexico-U.S. border. So uh, I will say that's been a pretty good rate of success by Ortega's terms. How's the U.S. responding, particularly in this, an election year where immigration, as always, is a very hot issue? Well, I think it has been a slow response. Uh, They were caught off guard at first on the charter flights. They were able to discuss with Cuba and Haiti over the control of these flights. They were reduced, but Ortega has continued to utilize other routes. This is a situation that is right in your face. That is an obvious case of weaponization of migration. So it it seems to me that the Biden administration will try to do something more proactively in the next couple of weeks. That is Manuel Orozco, director of the Inter-American Dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. If it feels like everyone around you is coughing and sniffling, or if your own nose is running, that is because it is full-on respiratory virus season here in the U.S. And flu and COVID are expected to rise now after the holidays. NPR's Ping Wong has the outlook and some tips for protecting yourself over the next few weeks. In the state of Kentucky, the respiratory illness levels are currently high. Dr. Stephen Stack is the state health commissioner. The influenza virus is the thing that's really skyrocketing right now. So influenza is sharply escalating, and that's driving more hospitalizations. Dr. Stack would like to see more people get vaccinated. He says less than 50% of Kentuckians have gotten their flu shot this season. Still, that's better than the 10% vaccination rate for the COVID booster in Kentucky, even though COVID remains the bigger danger. Stack says dozens of Kentuckians are dying each month because of it. So everybody who is certainly elderly, and not even old elderly, like young elderly, 60 and older, should go out and get uh, a vaccine for a booster for COVID. To be clear, Stack recommends a COVID booster to anyone six months and up that didn't get it the season. And he says there's still a place for masks, especially for older people who are more likely to get very sick from COVID. The situation in Kentucky looks a lot like what's happening nationally. When it comes to the top three respiratory viruses that health officials are worried about, RSV seems to have plateaued or peaked. COVID is elevated and expected to rise, and flu has been coming in hot. Marlene Wolf, an epidemiologist at Emory University, says the pacing this year is a little different. Last year, RSV and flu really took off right at the same time, along with COVID, and all three of those together were pretty nasty. And this year, it appears that there's a bit more of an offset. That's been good so far for hospital capacity, which has been pretty stable. That means people who are quite ill and need medical care are generally able to get it. Some hospitals in different parts of the country, from Massachusetts to Illinois to California, are starting to require masks for staff again, and in some cases for patients and visitors. Dr. Mandy Cohen, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, says people who are feverish and sneezing and coughing should stay home and watch their symptoms. 
I think there is a difference between a bit of a runny nose and a light cough and body aches, fever, difficulty moving through your day. Some of those things are what should trigger you to go get tested. And the reason to get tested is that if you are in the early stages of COVID or flu and at risk of getting worse, there are prescription pills that can reduce your chances of ending up in the hospital. Flu and COVID vaccines, tests, and treatments should be covered by health insurance. For those who are uninsured, the government is also offering a program called Test to Treat, which offers free tests, free telehealth appointments, and free treatments at home. Dr. Cohen from the CDC says people can protect themselves over the next few weeks by staying aware. So you want to know what's happening in your community. Is there a lot of virus circulating? And then what are the tools that I could layer on to protect myself depending on who I am, my age, my risk, as well as who I'm around. The CDC has maps down to the county level that they update weekly on their website. Cohen says there are many things available to help. Now it's up to people to make good use of them. Ping Huang, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Maurice Hines was a dancer, a choreographer, and an evangelist for the art of tap dancing. He and his brother, the famed Gregory Hines, helped keep tap in the public eye. Maurice Hines died on Friday in New Jersey. He was 80 years old. NPR's Andrew Limbong has this appreciation. And now, ladies and gentlemen... Making their debut at the Cotton Club, the Williams Brothers from Harlem. In the 1984 Francis Ford Coppola movie The Cotton Club, Maurice and Gregory Hines play the Williams Brothers, two tap dancers in Prohibition-era Harlem. Maurice plays Clay, the more straight-ahead brother. He doesn't want to do anything too flashy for their first club appearance. Gregory Hines plays Sandman, who dances to impress. In the movie, they squabble like brothers do until the arguments turn real and they fight and grow apart. Sandman gets big on his own, Clay hangs back a bit until the end where they reconcile. The broad strokes of the movie parallels the real-life relationship between the Hines brothers. Maurice Hines was born in 1943. He started tap dancing at the age of five. His younger brother, Gregory, started when he was three. Together, they learned and performed at clubs, hotels, and casinos across the country, with Maurice Hines always looking out for his younger brother. He told NPR in 1978 that it was, at times, difficult for him to find his own identity. When Gregory was born, my mother brought him home and... It wasn't her baby, it was my baby. He was mine. And everything that I did was more or less for Gregory, especially in the act. It was set up the act so that I was a straight man and I controlled everything. I took care of the musicians, I took care, so he could have room to create. Now, of course, this stifled my creativity. When the act broke up, Maurice Hines said he was unsure about his own creative juices, So he went back to basics, started working and auditioning at rinky-dink clubs in New York and finding his own voice. He found his way into theater and television, and the brothers eventually worked together again. When NPR spoke to them in 1978, it was because they'd reunited for the Broadway review Yubi. And when Maurice was asked, what makes a good tap dancer? His example was his brother. It's a feel for tap dancing. When you see a good tap dancer, there's... It's a joy. It's a joy. I'm not... 
a great tap dancer. I'm, I learn very fast. My brother is a great tap dancer in that he can improvise. He can really improvise and just go on and on. He Hines continues to praise his brother's skills and says that he himself mostly skates by on flash and flare. But they are brothers, so he still gets a shot in. Gregory tap dance on the improvisational style with very little flash and flare. Actually, he's not very talented at all, but very little flash and flare. But he's a genius at improvising. It's fabulous. They continue to have a tumultuous relationship while Maurice started directing and choreographing Broadway shows such as Uptown, It's Hot, and A Hot Feet. Gregory Hines died in 2003 from cancer. More than a decade later, Maurice Hines would launch Tappin' Through Life, a show written to honor the people that inspired him. Judy Garland, Lena Horne, and of course, his brother, Andrew Limbong and Pierre News. This one's for the New Year, New You enthusiasts. Our friends at NPR's Life Kit podcast say you should try to be mindful when you eat. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, they'll share tips on how to slow down and really think about how we eat and where our brains are when we're eating. To find out more, listen to All Things Considered tomorrow on the radio or by asking your smart speaker to play your member station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, border politics are driving the news in Congress this week. Ahead at 525, impeachment hearings for the Homeland Security Secretary begin, and border policy is complicating negotiations over foreign aid. The details are coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Center for Professional Education Certificates in Real Estate Studies. Stay current and competitive in commercial real estate, facilities management, and real estate finance. Learn more at an information webinar Tuesday, January 9th at 2 p.m. Sign up at bu.edu professional. Since the pandemic, healthcare workers have been quitting in droves. With fewer options, some patients just go to the emergency room. We're seeing a lot of people coming in for things that are really primary care issues, not urgent care issues. They can't get in, in part because there's just such a lack of providers. How a doctor shortage hurts patients and practitioners. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. There's a winter storm watch in effect for the first weekend of the new year. Starts Saturday afternoon and runs until late Sunday night. The heaviest of the snow will most likely be north and west of the I-95 corridor. Could be 6 to 12 inches of snow there, a lot less toward Boston. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Singer-songwriter Maddie Zom's debut album, Now That I've Been Honest, is a deeply vulnerable introduction to the 25-year-old's life. I spoke with her a few months ago when the record came out, and we talked about the ups and downs of her past few years, from going viral with her song, Fat Funny Friend. Can't be too proud and can't think pretty. Do they keep me around so their flaws just seem silly? to coming out to her parents and the world as queer. Someday you'll kiss a girl and you'll panic. Some guy will break your heart and you'll feel manic. Her debut record opens with a track called Where Do All the Good Kids Go? She sings about growing up in Boise, Idaho, and the heavy responsibility she felt within her church, even as a young teen. Parker made me leave. 
would say I was pretty mature for my age, like emotionally aware. So I was put in a lot of situations where I should have been a kid and was expected to be an adult. I led worship when my best friend's mom died. And that was an honor, but if I'm honest, I was terrified. I think people that go through that, it's it's not necessarily like you just skip being a kid. It catches up to you at some point. I was always white to To be that good at growing up Does anybody really know Where all of the good kids go? And I think that that's why I had like a crazy last year-ish was because I feel like I was like catching up on my like high school, college age choices that I never made, you know? Yeah. You touch on so many firsts on this album and meaningful, really emotional moments. And I want to talk to you about one of those songs, um, the song Danny. Back in high school, swimming right behind you. I liked, I looked in your blue suit. Can you tell us the story behind it? I had just posted Fat Funny Friend, it went viral, then You Might Not Like Her went viral, and within like a few weeks I had signed to a label and was headed home to film You Might Not Like Her, the music video, and when I got there I ran into a friend that I had known in high school. That relationship was just very, very confusing for me, and when I ran into her it was interesting because I had come out at that time. And I saw her and I was like, oh my goodness, like I had a crush on her. I totally was into her. Because I was in the church and closeted, I didn't even put two and two together. And so I think that's a very queer experience to like realize that. And although I don't feel that way now, I just needed to write it to to honor that part of me, you know? Yeah. You mentioned the song You Might Not Like Her, which for a while was all over Instagram reels and TikTok. And I do have to ask you, there was this video that you posted earlier this year that I will just confess, I absolutely sobbed my eyes out when I saw it. <laughs> um and it's from the first time that you performed that song with your parents in the same room. You're singing and the fans are singing. And it's that part in the lyrics where you talk about how someday you think you'll disappoint your parents, but they'll love you. Not despite, but regardless. And I think it's your mom who yells back, never, just like from her chest. Someday you'll think you'll disappoint your parents. <laughs> never! <laughs> I know that you came out to your parents when you released mm -hmm. that song. What has that been like for the evolution of your relationship with them? Oh, God. I am going to cry. I love my parents. Like, words cannot describe how well they have handled all of this. For them to have had to come to terms with my sexuality so quickly, and then not only that, but have the world hear it so quickly after. And although in the beginning it, it was really difficult, for my mom especially, like she knew me in and out. And when I came out to her, it wasn't a no you're not, like uh, I don't want you to be or I'm ashamed of you. It was like a, I should have seen that. Like it was almost acknowledging that there was a part of me that she didn't understand. Some days feel like whiplash 180s in your head. 
that you'll label yourself just to take it back. My dad, he was the toughest person to come out to, I think, because for him, he was raised in a family where that just wasn't really tolerated. And we had hired an actor and an actress to play my parents for the scene where I come out for You Might Not Like Her. And my dad came in and he started crying and was like, I want a chance to give you the coming out that I wish that I would have given you the first time. Oh, wow. And I would like to be myself in the music video. And that for my dad, he doesn't like being on camera. Like this is the closest that I've been to my family ever. I wish that everybody had parents, like especially queer kids. I wish everyone received that type of support. I think the other thing that really shined through in this album for me is just so much queer joy and acceptance <laughs> yeah. and love. Can you talk about that part of this album a little bit? Because it was a delight to listen to. Ugh, thanks. Gay, gay, gay. It was so gay. This whole year has been so gay. Oh, my goodness. My favorite part of the album is the way that I introduced the gay stuff which is the oh um part. Yeah. I was on the way to my first date with a girl publicly. The Uber driver starts saying homophobic stuff just out of nowhere, sees a gay bar and he just starts going off. And I'm panicking because I'm thinking in my head, you know, I still got the religious trauma. I'm like, Jesus, is that you? Do you not want me to kiss a girl? Be real with me. And so I took a voice note for the girl that I was meeting up with. And um, he asked me like, so. What, what do you like in the man? Oh. Um, and then I just, it kickstarts into just the gayest part of the album. Romeo's a bore, he doesn't know just what you like. Your poison tastes like candy and I like to take a bite. I think I really leaned in to my gay. Maddie, if the Maddie Zom of 10 years ago, who was leading worship at that church back in Idaho and who had not yet come out, if she could see where you are today, what do you think she'd have to say to you? <laughs> She'd be horrified. Oh my God, horrified. And I am so proud of that. I think little me could have used someone like me and the people that go to my concerts. Maddie, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a delight. Maddie Zom, her debut album is Now That I've Been Honest. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. 
37 degrees now in Boston. Should be clear and cold overnight tonight, falling to about 20. And then tomorrow could reach the mid-30s, a sunny day tomorrow. Saturday should bring in the clouds. Still dry, though, still in the mid-30s. But then winter arrives later Saturday with snowfall and rain together, making for a pretty sloppy mix. Sunday is likely to bring mainly snow, especially north and west of I-95. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.59. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. Nearly two years after Russia launched an all-out assault on Ukraine, Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. says her country will not back down. We will never surrender and we will continue fighting. And you can hear it from the people on the battlefield and you can hear it from civilians. An update on the war coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead in Beirut, thousands attend the funeral of a top Hamas official. Early in the pandemic, car lots were nearly void of cars. But last year, the U.S. auto industry sold more cars than it has since 2019. And some voters in New Hampshire are looking for an alternative to Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and that's leading them to consider Nikki Haley. That story and Wall Street numbers are coming up. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A middle school student is dead and five other people were wounded, including a school administrator, after a 17-year-old student armed with a shotgun and a handgun opened fire at a high school in Perry, Iowa today. Mitch Mortvet is with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation and details what else authorities found at the scene. Officers located during the search of the school an improvised explosive device. The state fire marshal and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms rendered the device safe. Numerous officers from multiple agencies were able to secure the school and verify no additional threats. Authorities say the shooter was found dead of an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound. The incident took place before the start of classes this morning. Still not clear what prompted the attack. The White House says it has evidence that Russia has acquired ballistic missiles from North Korea to use in its fight against Ukraine. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the Biden administration is describing the move as a significant and concerning escalation. Our information indicates that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea recently provided Russia with ballistic missile launchers and several ballistic missiles. On the 30th of December, 2023, Russian forces launched at least one of these North Korean ballistic missiles into Ukraine. The vast majority of migrants crossing the southern border of the U.S. have been traveling through Mexico. NPR's Ader Peralta tells us this week many of those travelers are not reaching the destination they'd intended. In response to U.S. requests, the Mexican government has stepped up its efforts to disperse the latest migrant caravan. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the ballistic missiles will enhance Russia's ability to target Ukraine's infrastructure and civilians at a critical moment in the conflict. Our information 
indicates that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea recently provided Russia with ballistic missile launchers and several ballistic missiles. Kirby says the administration believes that Russia is also seeking to acquire close-range ballistic missiles from Iran. Kirby added that a Russian-Iran deal had not been completed, but that the U.S. is concerned that Russia's negotiations to get the weapons are actively advancing. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Last year was apparently a pretty good one for automakers who were reporting consumers bought a total of 15.6 million vehicles last year. Those numbers indicate car buyers were largely undeterred by high prices, rising interest rates, a computer chip shortage, and some strikes by auto workers. Where sales have yet to return to the 17 million annual rate before the pandemic, price increases for vehicles have cooled slightly. On Wall Street, a mix closed today. The Dow was up 10 points to 37,440. The Nasdaq closed down 81 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, the Massachusetts Senate unanimously approved a bill that legalizes the use of fentanyl test strips. The paper strips are used to detect the presence of the potentially lethal opioid on street drugs. The strips are classified as illegal drug paraphernalia. Supporters of their legalization say the quick test can help prevent fatal overdoses. The House has yet to vote on the measure. Boston's new city council president is expressing sadness over this week's resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay. Councillor Ruthie Louis-Jean is a Harvard alum, and like Claudine Gay, she is also a black woman and Haitian-American. On WBR's Radio Boston today, Louis-Jean said she's proud that Gay rose to the top post at Harvard but she regrets the way her tenure has ended. I'm completely saddened, right, that in this week of joy, personal joy for me, there's also personal sadness because she is no longer at the helm of this storied institution that is also uh, an imperfect, a very much imperfect institution and also my alma mater. Gay resigned Tuesday amid allegations of plagiarism and amid criticism of her congressional testimony last month about anti-Semitism on the Harvard campus. Brookline and Cambridge are among the communities granted permission to limit the use of fossil fuels in new construction projects. The State Department of Energy Resources made their approvals public today. The municipalities will be allowed to require new buildings use heating and cooling systems that are fossil fuel free. Concord, Lincoln and Lexington are also taking part. A state study found buildings are responsible for 35 percent of greenhouse gas emissions in Massachusetts. And the State Department of Public Utilities is launching an inquiry into the high cost of energy bills in the state. Its aim is to find ways to improve on current energy affordability programs for residents who have a hard time paying their utility bills. The state will conduct public input through March 1st, and possible measures include giving discounts based on a customer's income. In the forecast, a windy afternoon, gusts could get stronger tonight, cold tonight, down around 20 degrees. And then for tomorrow, it should be sunny, still windy, high temperatures in the mid-30s. And then we have a wintry mix moving in, not so much for Saturday day, but Saturday night and then Sunday as well. 37 degrees in Boston at 507. WBUR supporters include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. 
This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There is a reasonable chance you are listening to this show while driving around. And if you are and you happen to pass a car dealership, are there a lot more cars on the lot than you're used to seeing? When supply chains were out of whack during COVID, new cars were hard to come by. Not anymore. And in a few minutes, we'll hear more about what kinds of vehicles you're selling now and why. First, though, to the war in Ukraine. Next month will mark two years since Russian tanks and troops rolled across the border and launched an all-out assault on Ukraine. How and when that war might end remain very much open questions. Consider that last year, 2023, ended with one of the most intense Russian bombardments yet. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says Russia fired 500 missiles and drones at Ukraine in just five days. Dozens of people were killed. And now Ukraine is facing yet another challenge. Western support and funding for the war are fading. Oksana Markarova is Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. She joins me now. Ambassador, I'm glad to speak with you again. Thank you, Mary Louise, for having me again and always happy to speak to you. Let's begin with this prisoner swap yesterday, the first one in months and the biggest one yet. Yesterday, Ukraine and Russia exchanged the most prisoners of war since since the war began. 230 Ukrainians released, 248 Russians. How did this deal come to be? Yes, we are very happy that after five months since Moscow actually frozen any 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 talks and exchanges uh, of the prisoners that we were able to do it because we never stopped trying. We are very glad that our ombudsman and uh, all the people involved were able to move ahead and then 230 Ukrainians are back home. And who are they, the, the Ukrainians who are now headed home? Uh, yes, so among these people, you know, we had um, 48 actually individuals who were considered missing until they were exchanged. Uh, we had six illegally imprisoned civilians. They were not uh, even involved in the in the military operations. We had five women. Uh, we had seven defenders of the Snake Island, very famous guy, as well as a number of Mariupol defenders and National Guard soldiers, and some also uh, soldiers who were captured at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, which, as you remember, was illegally occupied, attacked by Russia at the beginning of this full-fledged war. So. Uh, quite a diverse group of Ukrainian defenders from, from different regiments. Does this open the door in any way to a breakthrough, even to talking with Russia on any other front? Well, unfortunately, I wouldn't say so. It's it's a separate discussions which uh, a number of countries and organizations are helping us with. But no, it unfortunately, as we see from the deadly attacks by the missiles and and everything that Russia does on the battlefield, they intend to kill all of us and destroy Ukraine, unfortunately remains unchanged. So I do want to ask a question or two about the state of the battlefield today. You and I are, of course, speaking in January. And I'm remembering that last winter, last January, Russia was trying very hard to take down Ukraine's electrical grid. Are they trying again? Well, they're trying to destroy whatever they can they can reach out. That includes, of course, the energy, but it's not limited to that. Like like last year, yes, they not only tried, they did create a lot of damage 
last winter. We are much better prepared for this winter, thanks to our work, but also thanks to our partners. You know, we have much more air defense and we have prepared our energy system. It's more resilient, it's better protected. So let me turn you to the wobbling support from the West. What do you think is driving the erosion of support for Ukraine? Oh, that's, uh, you know, first of all, we have to keep informing people, you know, in any democracy, the parliaments, the administrations, elected leaders uh, support what people tell them to support and what people what people agree to support. And I think it's very important to continue informing people about not only the state of the war in Ukraine, but why it is important to win for all of us, not only for Ukrainians, but why for everyone who believes in freedom, it is important to win while it's still in Ukraine and not to allow Putin, like Hitler many, many years ago, to create another huge war, which will then uh, drag everyone into it. But to take the state of affairs here in Washington today, as you know, the White House has asked for more than $60 billion to help Ukraine. That request is stalled in Congress. There's no more money coming unless lawmakers sign off on it. Are you hopeful that the U.S. will eventually come through with more money? Well, we critically need it, and we critically need it in order to be able to win it faster so that, again, U.S. and other allies will not need to spend much more if Putin is emboldened and attack one of the NATO allies. And yes, you know, I know it's difficult. I know in democracy, the discussions are always very sometimes lengthy, you know, and as you know, the Ukrainian package, it's not just the Ukrainian package. It's uh, together with the help to Israel and with so much debated the border issues. And in all my conversations, and again, thank you for informing through the the Radio Now uh, American public, we are just asking our partners and the lawmakers here to find a decision and move ahead as quick as possible because we do need the support yesterday. Just spell out what the consequences would be if the money dries up. What are the consequences for your country? Well, it's uh, it's even horrific to think about what consequences will be if uh, there is no further support because, again, Ukrainians will keep fighting And we have uh, enough people who are willing to fight. But, you know, we do rely on our partners, on the U.S. and other 50-plus countries, which uh, U.S. has gathered in the so-called Rammstein coalition that provides us with the capabilities. Without this support, it will be very, very difficult, if not, you know, impossible to win. And we need to win. You know, Two years ago, when Russia first invaded, Americans were all in. You know from driving around Washington and other parts of the U.S., Ukrainian flags were everywhere and in every other window, every other house. That is gone. And so I I wonder what case you would make to Americans listening that this fight is still our fight, is still is still a fight important for Americans to be all in on. Well, you know, it's not gone. When I drive around Washington, D.C., when I travel, I recently went to Minnesota before I was in Ohio, and the Ukrainian flags are still there. And every time I talk to people, I'm yet to find anyone who would say, no, we want to support Russia and we think Russia should win. You know, it's the right thing to do to support Ukraine now so we can win it together and return to much peaceful world. Oksana Markarova is Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. Ambassador, thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, and thank you to all Americans for the support.
Just a couple of years ago, early in the pandemic, it was hard to find a new car to buy. Dealer lots were just empty. But now cars are back on lots and they are selling. According to new numbers out this week, a lot more people drove new cars home last year. NPR's Camila Dominoski joins us to talk about the year in auto sales. And Camila, I've been watching the new car market and it has just been straight up weird for several years now. What is it like right now? It's a lot less weird than it was. I mean, prices, they were skyrocketing. They've finally leveled off. Like you mentioned at the top, dealer lots, there are vehicles there now. You can take something for a test drive. And you no longer have to pay thousands of dollars over sticker price to take a vehicle home. There are discounts and incentives again. You can actually pay less than the sticker. There is still some bad news on the budget front. I mean, cheap cars remain really hard to find. Companies are just making fewer, smaller, no-frills vehicles to focus on more profitable models instead. So that's rough, and interest rates are pretty high, which is a challenge. But despite all that, people are snapping up new cars. Okay, give us some numbers. How many cars are we talking here? About 15.5 million last year here in the U.S. That is still smaller than it was before the pandemic, but it's bigger than any year since COVID began. And, you know, that's despite a very significant strike by the UAW last year and despite the fact that Americans are actually driving fewer miles than we did pre-pandemic, according to federal data. Okay, so what kinds of new cars are people buying? Yeah, SUVs remain wildly popular. Looking at the numbers that we got this week about 2023 sales, people are buying a lot of Korean cars. Hyundai and Kia just set records. They both had their best year ever. Uh, Those vehicles from those sister companies, especially their SUVs, they've been really well-reviewed. They're very popular. Um, A lot of brands, interestingly, reported really strong sales of hybrids, so particularly fuel-efficient vehicles. The Prius is the classic example, Mm -hmm. but now we're seeing a lot of bigger vehicles, SUVs, and pickup trucks that are hybrids, and they're selling like hotcakes. Okay, I've had my eye on an electric vehicle. How about Mm -hmm. those? Oh, let's talk about it, Juana. So overall, EV sales are up. They are. We The country sold more than a million electric vehicles last year, which was a big milestone. There are a ton of incentives to promote them. It's an important part of the fight against climate change, as you know. EV prices are dropping, so that's lucky news for you, Juana. And mm. Tesla just had another record quarter, so that's all in the EV sales are booming bucket. At the same time, while sales are growing, they haven't been growing as quickly as a lot of people had expected. And over those same three months that Tesla set a record, Tesla was not the world's top EV maker. So wait, who was? BYD. I'm sorry, who? The Chinese automaker BYD, Build Your Dreams. Their vehicles aren't available here in the U.S., thanks in part to a really big tariff. But it's a reminder that this is a global market. The EV transition is happening globally, and it's happening at different speeds. So far, a lot faster in China and Europe than here in the U.S. NPR's Camila Dominoski, thank you. Thanks.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR on this Thursday afternoon. Coming up on WBUR, a bomb threat emailed to several state government offices across the country have been deemed a hoax. But the threat underscores just how vulnerable state lawmakers are to this kind of disruption. Our story is coming up in about 15 minutes. The Dow picked up just a tiny percent today. S&P and NASDAQ wound up on the downside. S&P fell more than three-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ closed lower for a fifth day. It was down more than a half percent. A Dallas-based real estate firm is the new owner of a luxury apartment complex in Brookline. CBRE Group acquired Pelham Hall Apartments for $70 million. The century-old mid-rise building in Coolidge Corner includes 148 apartments and more than 14,000 square feet of real-tail space. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And Feldman Geospatial, presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. Today, Caleb Porter officially took over as the coach of the New England Revolution. Porter previously led pro soccer teams in Oregon and South Carolina. He says New England is well positioned to win a major league soccer championship. I wouldn't have taken the job unless I felt we could win an MLS Cup here. And now obviously you say that that's the vision but there's a long process to get there. Over my nine years in the league, I've developed a blueprint um, and a process to get there. Porter replaces Bruce Arena, who resigned in the fall after allegations of inappropriate behavior. We've got a cold night on the way, down around 20 degrees, sunny and dry tomorrow, temperatures in the 30s, and then snow is in the forecast for this weekend. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce calls this the first plowable snow in a while. Snow arrives Saturday night, some patchy light snow by the late afternoon or early evening. The height of the storm, though, is from overnight Saturday into Sunday morning, and then the intensity and coverage of the snow will taper for the second half of Sunday. Around six inches or more is possible north and west of where the rain snow line sets up, which should be at the coast. Biggest question mark, how far inland it can push. The city and the coast will see lower totals because of the changeover and mixing that will occur. Expect plows and crews to be out, hazardous travel, isolated outages where the jackpot zone is north and west of the city. 37 degrees now in Boston at 521. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Beirut, thousands of mourners turned out for the burial of a senior Hamas official and two Hamas fighters today. They were assassinated in what Lebanon and Hamas say was an was an Israeli drone strike in Lebanon earlier this week. NPR's Jane Araf was at the funeral and reports that most of the mourners insisted it was a celebration, one that would help liberate their homeland. The chants are in honor of the Hamas fighters, but the procession includes Palestinian factions from across the spectrum. They've come to pay tribute to Saleh al-Aruri. 
one of the founders of the Hamas military wing, and to two other Hamas fighters among the seven people killed. In a sea of Hamas flags, while a speaker calls for the destruction of Tel Aviv, Hassan Mahmoud waves the flag of another major group, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. The loss of Al Arouri is a loss for all the factions, not just Hamas in the end. We all hope to be like him. Lebanon blames the attack on an office building in a suburb of the capital on Israel. Israel has not claimed responsibility. Hezbollah, an Iran-backed Lebanese militia, which is the biggest armed force here, has vowed retaliation. But with fears the war in Gaza could widen to engulf Lebanon, the group hasn't said how it plans to retaliate. On this afternoon, under drizzle and gray skies, celebratory gunfire punctuates the chants. The minds of the mourners are on paradise, where they believe the dead men are now and on Palestine, their parents' and grandparents' homeland lost 76 years ago, a homeland they believe will be reclaimed. Just inside the gate of the Palestinian cemetery, the pallbearers are staggering under the weight of one of the coffins. They've carried it here for more than 40 minutes from the mosque, along with what's left of the bodies of two other Hamas commanders. This is a eulogy right now, but before this, there were celebrations, celebratory gunfire in the air, women throwing rice as they would at a wedding, because the people who have come here believe that this is an occasion to celebrate. And they're convinced that these deaths, and ones that they know are still to come, will help them regain their homeland. The bodies are taken out of the coffins to be buried in white shrouds. Grave diggers shovel in dirt. Off to the side, a man peels a photocopied photo of one of the men, Mohammed al-Rayis, from a discarded casket. He holds it tenderly. He turns out to be Reyes's brother, Izzat. In the U.S. and some European countries, Hamas is classified as a terrorist organization. Here and in other Arab countries, its members are often friends and family. Izzat Reyes and another brother, Ahmed, say they're happy that their younger brother, a Hamas fighter killed at 34, became a martyr. Izzat says they don't want Lebanon to be engulfed in war. He says there's only one thing they want from the Lebanese government, to let them go and fight. What we wish for is that they would open the borders for us and let us enter Palestine. Either paradise or Palestine. For most at this funeral, those are the only options worth choosing. Jane Araf, NPR News, Beirut. Congress returns next week and already fights over immigration hang over other key items on the agenda. For example, there is a deadline in mid-January to pass a spending bill, and Republicans say they will not approve more money for Ukraine and Israel in that bill unless Democrats agree to change border policies. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is at the Capitol. Hi, Deirdre. Hey, Lana. So, Deirdre, start by telling us more about how this debate over immigration is having an impact on Congress's agenda for 2024. 
Well, as you noted, the fight over the border was already part of the debate over any new aid for Ukraine and Israel. Republicans insisted those issues had to be linked. But now it's being added to the debate over government spending, government funding. House Speaker uh, Mike Johnson traveled to the border yesterday with dozens of Republicans and insisted the House GOP bill, which would finish building the wall and reinstate a bunch of Trump-era policies, is the only way to fix the problem and has to be part of any national security. Security funding, but that's a non-starter in the Senate. Republican Jim Jordan said, "If they can't get their bill into law, lawmakers should use the power of the purse to shut down the border." No money can be used to process or release into the country any new migrants. To just say suspend it now, which the president can do, but if he won't do it, we should put that one sentence in must-pass legislation. And we are now roughly two weeks away from a deadline when several federal agencies are going to run out of money. You mentioned that the House Republican position is a non-starter in the Senate. So I'm curious, what is happening across the Capitol? I understand there are bipartisan negotiations over border policy reforms. They're, they're still talking. They're working remotely today and having negotiations. They're trying to find a deal that they can attach to the national security funding package. Senate negotiators are focused on changes to asylum rules, limiting who can enter the U.S. and who can apply for asylum. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer made it clear the House GOP position of insisting on their bill, which passed with zero Democratic votes, is unacceptable. But Schumer acknowledged both parties are going to have to give in these talks. We know that we believe strongly we have to help solve this problem at the border, and we've, we're willing to meet the Republicans, uh, you know, a good part of the way. And Deirdre, as this debate heats up, House Republicans are moving to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. When do they expect to act on that? There's a House hearing next Wednesday in the Homeland Security Committee to take up articles of impeachment. The chairman of that committee, Mark Green, says Mayorkas has failed to enforce restrictions at the border and he has to be held accountable. Many in the far right in the House have been pushing for this for months. It's really something that the Republican base wants. But even if the House does approve articles of impeachment against Secretary Mayorkas, it's not likely he's going to be convicted or removed by the Democratic Senate. And Deirdre, this is, of course, a presidential election year. Right. (laughs) Are we already seeing signs of how this issue is playing out on the campaign trail? We are. I mean, as you know, the Republican frontrunner in the presidential election, Donald Trump, made immigration the centerpiece of his first campaign in 2016. He's continuing to try to paint his primary opponents in 2024 as weak on border security. Uh, It's something the base really cares about. In terms of congressional campaigns, we're already seeing this issue play out in a special election coming up in February 13th in New York to replace Republican George Santos, who was expelled last month. One of the first ads in the race is about about the border, and it's coming from Democrats. An outside super PAC supporting Tom Suozzi is touting his record addressing the border and crime. Just shows you how much Democrats recognize this issue is important to voters, not just on the border, but in swing districts. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you. Thanks, Juana.
This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And Summer Orchestra Institute at New England Conservatory. For students 13 through 18, priority registration ends February 4th. Apply at necmusic.edu. I'm Scott Tong. A new study suggests that when we do our own research, we're more likely to be led to sources backing false claims. Researchers say this could explain why people are more likely to believe fake news, disinformation, or conspiracy theories. The dangers of how we search. Next time, here and now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The White House says Russia launched several North Korean ballistic missiles into Ukraine last week. We anticipate that Russia will use additional North Korean missiles to target Ukraine's civilian infrastructure and to kill innocent Ukrainian civilians. These North Korean ballistic missiles are capable of ranges of approximately 900 kilometers. That's about 550 miles. This is a significant and concerning escalation in the DPRK's support for Russia. That's White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. He says it underscores the need for Congress to approve funding for military aid to Ukraine. Saturday marks the third anniversary of the deadly and violent January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Time Dreisbach reports former President Donald Trump has embraced the rioters as part of his campaign for president. NPR reviewed Trump's speeches, rallies, and social media posts and found that the former president has promised to, quote, free or pardon January 6th defendants more than a dozen times. In his stump speech, Trump says the defendants are being persecuted. I call them the J6 hostages, not prisoners. I call them the hostages. To date, Trump has given $10,000 through his PAC to help those defendants. It's not clear whether he's donated any more than that. Around 900 people have pleaded guilty or been convicted of crimes in connection with January 6th, including breaching the Capitol, assaulting police, and seditious conspiracy. President Joe Biden has said Trump's promise to pardon January 6th rioters threatens democracy. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow was up 10 points, down to 37,440. The Nasdaq was down 81, ending at 14,510. That's down a half percent. The S&P 500 was down by 16 points at 46.88. That's down three-tenths of a percent. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The National Weather Service has posted a winter storm watch north and west of Boston from Saturday afternoon through Sunday night. The Weather Service says some areas outside the I-95 belt could get 6 to up to 12 inches of snow with wind gusts as high as 40 miles an hour that could make driving dangerous and lead to power outages. Again, this is during the day on Sunday. The full forecast is coming up in a couple of minutes. Newly elected Boston City Council President Ruthie Louis-Jean is calling for more civility on the council. She was sworn in Monday as the body's first ever Haitian-American leader. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Louisian is taking charge of a council that's divided between two factions, one more moderate and historically Irish Catholic, and the other mostly non-white and progressive. The last legislative body was marred by rival councillors slinging personal attacks at one another. 
Louisian tells WBUR's Radio Boston she hopes to end that culture. It doesn't mean that we're not going to uh, disagree because we will. We are a diverse body with diverse opinions. But can we do so with collegiality and with goodwill and always centering the needs of the city of, of residents of the city of Boston? Former Council President Ed Flynn made a similar plea for civility at the start of 2023. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The state Senate today unanimously passed a wheelchair warranty bill. The measure would require wheelchair warranties to last at least two years. Critics say it doesn't do enough to address preventive maintenance and the cost of repairs. A vote in the House on a corresponding measure has not been scheduled yet. And a new study from Mass General Hospital is showing a genetic link between an eating disorder and the time of day you wake up. Researchers found that people with anorexia nervosa are more likely to be early risers, and that could put them at increased risk for developing anorexia. Harvard Medical School assistant professor Hassan Dashi conducted the study. There's this unique link between morningness and anorexia nervosa, which has not been uh, seen for other psychiatric disorders. Other psychiatric disorders like depression, like schizophrenia, and like binge eating disorders tend to be evening-based diseases. He says the research opens the possibility that doctors could include such things as nighttime bright light therapy in a patient's treatment plan. Got a cold night ahead tonight, about 20 for a low, then sunshine tomorrow in the mid-30s. Saturday's looking gray, but Sunday's looking white. Should have about 6 to 12 inches of snowfall well north and west of Boston on Sunday. Closer to the city, though, there should be a rainy and snowy mix. Careful on the road Sunday, midday especially could be rough. Storms should move out during the second half of Sunday, then sunshine moves in for Monday. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Yesterday, government offices and lawmakers in nearly half the country's state capitals received a threatening email. The sender claimed to have planted bombs in state houses across the country. No explosives were found, and the FBI has deemed the email a hoax. But the threat led to various levels of disruption at a time when many states are just beginning their 2024 legislative sessions. NPR's Rylan Barton joins us now and has been following the story. Hi there. Hi, Juana. Ryland, as we said, this was all going down yesterday. What can you tell us today? Well, um, we know it was a hoax. NPR got a copy of the email, which was three sentences long. It was sent to a seemingly random list of officials in at least 22 different states. Uh, for example, in New York, it was sent to the comptroller. In Ohio, it was sent to the Capitol Building Visitor's Office. Here's Michonne Lindstrom, Communications Director for the Kentucky Secretary of State. In other states, like the Secretary of State's office received it, like the legislature received it. But in Kentucky, the only person who received it was our Deputy Secretary of State. She said she forwarded it to the state police, which evacuated the Capitol while bomb-sniffing dogs combed the building. At least nine states evacuated government buildings on Wednesday. And in Mississippi, the Capitol was evacuated again after the state Supreme Court received a bomb threat today. But other states didn't evacuate at all. 
Okay, former State House reporter here. So I know that some state houses are already back in session while others have not yet gotten started. Do we have any sense of just how disruptive this all was? So the shutdowns were pretty brief, a few hours in most states. In Kentucky and Mississippi, it was just the second day of the session. Uh, in Kentucky, lawmakers weren't actually in the Capitol building at that time. They were in an ethics training in another part of the complex. So that continued inter uninterrupted. But the Secretary of State's office did say it disrupted some candidate filings. That deadline is this week. Uh, then in Minnesota, the state Supreme Court moved hearings to the uh, to other courtrooms across the street. So not a huge impact, Juana, but it is worrisome as more state houses do start coming into session and getting to the business of actually passing laws. Okay, I know you said at the top that this was a hoax, but do we know anything yet about who is behind all of this or what their motivation might be? So the FBI is investigating in a statement to NPR. They said that they, quote, take hoax threats very seriously because it puts innocent people at risk. But they said they had no information to call this a specific credible threat and are still working with local police to gather information. But because of how widely this threat was dispersed, it's just hard to tell what political motivation was behind it, if any at all. Right. I mean, this is also coming amid other types of harassment and threats against public officials recently. And Ryland, I have to imagine that all of this might have some legislators a bit unsettled. Yeah, uh, state lawmakers in Georgia and Ohio, the mayor of Boston, the Maine Secretary of State, plus U.S. Senators Marjorie Taylor Greene and Rick Scott, Rick Scott, all reported swatting incidents around the holidays. Swatting is when someone falsely reports an incident at someone's home with the intention of provoking a police response. Georgia State Senator Clint Dixon told member station WABE that the incident at his house on Christmas evening was startling for him and his family. He said he was watching football at the time when all of the sudden he heard his wife yelling and that there was police running at the door. Mm. Uh, there's been a surge in threats against public servants at all levels in recent years. Several states have already passed laws increasing penalties for these swatting uh, calls and more considering proposals after these high profile incidents have taken place. That's NPR's Ryland Barton. Thank you. Thanks, Juana. The country's first large-scale offshore wind farm hit a historic milestone this week. It started sending power to the grid for the first time. Vineyard Wind off the coast of Massachusetts delivered five megawatts of electricity from one turbine. Now, that may not sound like much, but it is a big deal for this new industry. Barbara Moran from member station WBUR joins me. Hey there. Hello. Okay, I just said it's a big deal. How big a deal? It is a huge deal, I would say. It is hard to overestimate how big a deal this is. And that's because Vineyard Wind is going to be the first really big utility-scale offshore wind farm in the United States. And it's been a really long road getting here. And I think supporters of the industry are really breathing a sigh of relief this week. So, so far they have cranked out five megawatts. This is one turbine generating <laughs> yeah. power. But how big is, is Vineyard Wind going to be when it's done? Uh, it should be finished later this year, and when it's done, it will generate enough electricity for 400,000 homes, and that power will come from 62 turbines spaced about a mile apart in the Atlantic Ocean. And there are a couple other projects producing power, but they're much smaller with only a handful of turbines. There's a South Fork Wind near Long Island, which began producing electricity in December, and the Block Island Wind Farm is generating power off Rhode Island. Um, yesterday, I spoke with Klaus Moller, uh, the CEO of Vineyard Wind, and he said that his project is really like next level compared to those. That's the upside of offshore wind, that you can do it 
in the ocean in a scale that is similar to power plants, right? And that's why we say we are the forever first utility scale project. We are really a power plant offshore. So Moeller told me that um, Vineyard Wind achieved first power, as they call it, around midnight on Tuesday. And I asked what they did to celebrate. And he said they're doing their traditional celebration and eating cake. Eating cake. Sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the wider industry, the offshore wind industry, it's young. It's small. It has faced some headwinds, if I may use the term, in the past year and a half. What's going on? Yeah, headwinds are a good way to describe it. So there's been supply chain backlogs, these high interest rates, permitting challenges. And then in October, Orsted, which is the world's largest offshore wind developer, they just outright canceled two projects in New Jersey. That was a big blow. And then just on Wednesday, developers of a huge New York offshore wind project backed out of their contract. Now that project will probably still get built, but the developers want more money. So, but I think in a way, these setbacks have made this week's announcement from Vineyard Wind kind of all the more important. And that's because offshore wind supporters are hoping it gives developers more confidence that this industry is for real. Yeah, that's what I'm so curious about. How will they know if it's yeah. for real? <laughs> well, we'll see, right? The, we'll see. The, the federal government recently approved... Uh, the second largest or the largest project in the country so far off the coast of Virginia. And when that's finished in 2026, it'll power close to a million homes. Um, right now, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island are taking bids on their next offshore wind project. Um, and there's increasing action in the rest of the country as well. So um, California is trying to start up offshore wind. And there's a little bit of slow moving action in the Gulf of Mexico, too. And help us understand, Barbara, how this fits into President Biden's climate agenda. I have seen he wants to have 10 million homes powered by offshore wind by the year 2030. Is that realistic? Yeah, well, it's an ambitious goal for sure. And, um, you know, these financial and manufacturing challenges that the industry is facing will ease up, but they're not going to go away immediately. And as the offshore wind industry grows, so does the opposition to it. Some of that's coming from the fossil fuel industry, um, and some is coming from concerns that projects in the ocean will hurt the fishing industry and also harm marine animals like the critically endangered right whale in the Atlantic Ocean. WBUR's Barbara Moran, thanks for your reporting. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As the New Hampshire primary approaches, there's less than three weeks to go. The GOP candidate attracting a lot of attention is Nikki Haley. The former governor from South Carolina has been making regular campaign stops in the state for months. But these days, many of those events are standing room only. NHPR's Todd Bookman reports on who's showing up for her rallies and why. The parking lot attendants were overmatched. Car after car pouring into a country club parking lot in the coastal town of Rye, New Hampshire earlier this week to see Nikki Haley. I am leaning strongly towards her. I want to see her in person, see how she does. Amy Kennedy and her husband live in nearby Northampton. Like a lot of people here, they're looking for an alternative to Donald Trump. In Haley, they see a fresh choice. I think we need a younger, more dynamic government. Why is that important to you? 
because I think the, the, the group we have isn't doing a good job. And that's a message the 51-year-old Haley hammers in her stump speech, that Washington has become too gray, too entrenched, too disconnected. Right now, Congress has become the most privileged nursing home in the country. These are people making decisions on our national security. These are people making decisions on the future of our economy. It's nothing to play with. We need to know that we've got people at the top of their game. Haley reached the top of South Carolina politics as governor and then was appointed by Trump to be U.N. ambassador. Her pitch to voters focuses heavily on foreign policy, national security and the country's budget. But increasingly, she's also ramping up attacks against Trump, trying to calibrate them in a way that will satisfy anti-Trump voters while not alienating those who still like the former president. You know I'm right. Chaos follows him. And we can't be a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos because we won't survive it. You don't fix Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. What Haley is describing is on the minds of plenty of voters, including Annie Sorrentino from the town of New Boston. She attended an earlier rally and says neither administration, Trump or Biden, accomplished much for the average American. I'm really sick of the old, old. I'm the middle class and I'm tired of getting squashed. <laughs> Sorrentino is a registered Republican, but four years ago she voted for Biden. This time around, Sorrentino hasn't committed to Haley, but says she's already crossed off Biden, Trump and Chris Christie. Other first-time GOP contenders like Vivek Ramaswamy and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis continue to campaign in New Hampshire. The bigger the field, the less likely any one of these candidates defeats Donald Trump here. And so Haley and her backers, including New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, want this to appear as a binary choice, Haley versus Trump. We're narrowing this field down. We've effectively made this. This is a one-on-one -on -one race now. Bob Brackett has watched the field winnow. He's the kind of voter who relishes this time of year in New Hampshire. He says he's impressed with Haley. He says she's been the strongest on foreign policy and is the best candidate to beat Trump. The last two or three weeks is what makes uh, you know, a campaign. The fact that Governor Sununu has come out in, in her support, I think, is, is crucial. I actually think that there's going to be a run for the roses for this state. Who Republican voters give their rose to come primary day on January 23rd won't finalize the nomination. But it will show if Haley's momentum is real or just the wishful thinking of independent and GOP voters who oppose Trump. For NPR News, I'm Todd Bookman in Concord, New Hampshire. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR this evening. Coming up tomorrow, a nationwide shortage of physicians, nurses, and other primary care clinicians is straining community health centers. This, just as respiratory illnesses spike, will visit one health center tomorrow morning at 90.9 WBUR. Start your day here. And coming up in about 20 minutes from now, how wearing a hearing aid may help extend your life. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. 
In the forecast, should be cold overnight tonight. Look for temperatures about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, still sunny, windy, uh, highs about the mid-30s. And then staying there for Saturday, lots of clouds around on Saturday. Then a winter storm watch takes effect Saturday afternoon. Should continue through Sunday night. The heaviest of the snow comes during the day on Sunday. Most of it comes outside the I-95 belt. This is 90.9 WBUR. Boston's a big music town. Major acts play the big venues like MGM Music Hall or TD Garden. But there's also a lot of local talent and smaller theaters and clubs with live music every night. Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. If you want to catch live music around Boston, you've got your pick of genres. There's a thriving hip-hop scene with local artists like Sean Wire. Jazz at places like Wally's, Scullers, or the Beehive. A lively Irish folk scene in pubs across the city. Not to mention reggae and the underground punk scene. Check out our guide to arts and culture in Boston for where to find your vibe in the city. Go to WBUR.org slash field guide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Let's talk about clutter. Clutter looks like anything you can imagine. Clutter looks like the way we talk to ourselves. It looks like our calendar. It looks like our Netflix queue. You know, it's not just physical stuff. It's anything that is causing chaos in our lives. That's Star Hansen, a professional organizer known as the Clutter Whisperer. Now, maybe you have a New Year's resolution to be tidier, keep a neater home. Or maybe you just want to minimize the chaos, but life gets in the way. So, NPR Life Kit reporter Andy Tegel sat down with Hansen to bring you some tips on how to declutter your space and keep it that way. Ready? Here's where Hansen says you should start. So when it comes to home organizing, you do really want to start in the easiest place first. I don't recommend starting with the most emotional things or paperwork, you know, memorabilia and paperwork are two things that I say, please save that for further down the line, Mm. because those two tend to be the most emotionally triggering. We are looking at organizing as creating a skill set. Like most people, if they have recurring clutter, do not feel like they have a handle on the process of organizing. Mm. And so you don't want to start, you know, with the most difficult thing first. Star says she's big about setting an intention for a space. So look around that messy office or living room and think, what is it that I want to do in this room? How do I want it to feel? And, you know, what do I want it to look like? How do I know what to keep and get rid of? For me, it's the bedroom. I store a lot of my clothes under my bed. To be fair to me, my apartment is super short on storage. But also, I have a really hard time letting go of clothes. And they can sometimes take over our bedroom entirely. Star says to help, start thinking about three to five activities you want to do in the room. You're going to sleep, you're going to store clothes, you're going to connect with your partner, right? Those are maybe three things that we would say in that space. And we would pull all the clothes out. And I always tell people, don't make decisions as you go. Mm. What you want to do is you want to look at your stuff with neutral eyes, like as though you're helping a friend and none of your stuff means anything to you. Just pull them all out and then you want to put them into categories in a clear neutral space. So like say on top of the bed. So what you want to do is all jeans go here, all t-shirts go here, all socks go here. So you categorize everything all together. 
Then you want to go through each pile and make a decision. Does the stay or go, stay or go? That's what we're kind of looking for, right? And then once you're done going through everything, you want to take all those things that you're going to get rid of and get them out right then because you want to give yourself that openness, that freedom, that space to think. As long as you're looking at things you already made the decision to get rid of, you're kind of keeping yourself stuck in the past. So get it to the car to be donated or by the door. Physically move it out of that space. Yeah, yeah get it out of there. And then you want to go through each pile and you want to say, okay, where am I going to store this? That's when we're talking about building systems. Okay, great. Well, I want all my t-shirts hung. So you hang your t-shirts. I want all of the jeans folded and put into this bin underneath my bed. Fold it, put it underneath there, label it on all four sides, shove it under there. You're going to go through each category in that way. When we look at the concept of clutter as a whole, it's like one giant blob of chaos versus, oh, what am I going to do with my jeans? What am I going to do with my tank tops? And it becomes easier to dial into. Once you found a home for everything, Star says it's time to personalize your space and make it beautiful. If you put some things in the closet, for example, do you want to paint the wall green? Do you want to hang a painting from your aunt? What do you want in there that reminds you of you and makes you feel happy? Because no one wants to live in a surplus store. You know, we, we want to feel personal. So what you want is that when you open that door, when you go underneath the bed, there's something that just makes you feel happy and peaceful and recognize yourself because when you decorate or when you kind of personalize a space, it stops you from adding more clutter. There's something about it that we won't kind of defile an area if we feel an endearment to it. Mm. And then from there, you want to decide what's your maintenance plan, right? So it's pretty, it's set up. Now, how am I going to maintain this? What I always tell people is make your maintenance systems for your laziest day. Mm. We all are superheroes when we are well-rested and like feeling good. <laughs> and the truth is, what happens when you come home from traveling? What happens when you get the flu? Those are the moments where we really lose our systems because suddenly we've gotten mm. lost because things didn't go according to plan. There's a lot of beautiful and also very expensive ways to get organized these days. You know, I'm thinking about Instagram ads for various set of containers and all the videos I see for people's immaculate walk-in pantries. Um, does decluttering have to come with a price tag? What I have found in all my years of organizing is in every pile of chaos is the solution. Meaning that when I come into somebody's house and we're organizing an entire room, yes, I could go and buy bins and boxes, but I have never not found the organizing solution buried in the chaos. I promise you there is something in your house that you can use for that, even if it's like a box from your iPhone. So just knowing that you have this option to shop from within your own home is really powerful. And it's really important to take the time to create systems that work for you and how you really think. Is clutter a problem if it doesn't bother you? Does clutter only become a problem when it bothers you? It is only a problem if it's a problem for you. Mm. And it's really important that we mind our own side of the street because again, you don't know what someone is going through. It sounds like I'm very pro-clutter and in some ways I am. It is okay to have a layer of chaos and disorganization in your life. If we can be okay with that, it allows us to stop the shame stop the judgment, start to see what the root of it is so we can actually have a chance of letting it go. I want to touch a little bit on relief versus completion. When you're tackling big projects or when you're just in the middle of it and you can't see your way through, can you talk to us a little bit about how to avoid overwhelm, some, some tips or strategies for, um, you know, for staying on top of it and not losing the thread? Absolutely. You can say, I'm not going to be in servitude to this clutter. I am choosing to take X amount of time to devote to clearing this clutter. So instead of saying, I'm going to take as long as this clutter takes to get organized, because the truth is 
you could spend five hours on a pile of clutter, 20 minutes on a pile of clutter, or five days on a pile of clutter, and you get to determine how long. So you could say, I'm willing to give this one hour. And in one hour, you just make it better. You don't have to get it completed fully all the way done because that's a moving target. You can just say, I'm willing to give this an hour and really give yourself that hour and do the best that you can. Like sometimes getting organized is not about this thorough down to the needle, you know, process. Sometimes it's just, I just need to walk in this room. And so that might look like you just walking through with a garbage bag and grabbing everything that's trash that you can see with your eye or the same with donations or saying, I only have an hour, but I need to walk in this room and boxing things up and stacking it so that it gives you a breezeway, like a real walkway. And so you really have to notice like, okay, what is it that I need from this process right now? What kind of resources am I able to devote to it? Because again, we have this idea that we're supposed to like get it all done. And it's like, that's not always the case. And what if that's okay? What if this is you accomplishing something very big in small manageable steps? What if that's enough? That was Star Hansen, the Clutter Whisperer, speaking with NPR reporter Andy Tagle. Life Kit wants to help you make and keep your New Year's resolutions. You can check out Life Kit's Resolution Planner, choose areas of life you would like to focus on, and the tool will guide you to some of Life Kit's best tips on the topic. You can find it at npr.org slash new year. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mathnasium, who believes that every kid can be a math kid. Mathnasium offers customized math instruction intended to challenge advanced kids and help struggling kids get better. Learn more at mathnasium.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. There's a winter storm watch in effect for the first weekend of the new year. It starts Saturday afternoon, runs through late Sunday night. Heaviest of snow will most likely be north and west of the I-95 corridor, where there could be 6 to 12 inches of snow, along with wind gusts as high as 40 miles an hour. That, again, is mostly on Sunday. Stay tuned for the forecast. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Three years after the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, former President Donald Trump says he'll pardon the attackers if he returns to the White House. Counterterrorism experts are concerned. He's gone full steam ahead in praising and in his own way endorsing the January 6th rioters and extremists who attacked the Capitol. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Trump's promise and its potential impact coming up. Also, several hundred pages of court documents have been released in a case brought against the sex trafficker and private financier Jeffrey Epstein. We'll hear what's in them. Approximately 40 million adults in the U.S. have hearing loss, but only one in every 10 wears a hearing aid. 
A new study shows people who wear them may live longer. We'll find out why. Also, the Hershey Company is being sued for putting cute little faces on the wrappers of their peanut butter cups, but not on the cups themselves. These stories and Wall Street numbers are just ahead. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is setting off on another tour of the Mideast, his fourth since the war between Israel and Hamas began in early October. NPR's Jackie Northam has more from Tel Aviv. Secretary Blinken's focus will be on the war in Gaza. He's expected to urge Israel to limit civilian casualties there and press for more humanitarian aid into the enclave. But other recent developments threatening stability in the region will now be part of his agenda. That includes the assassination of a senior Hamas leader in Beirut, widely believed to have been carried out by Israel, and attacks on commercial ships by Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. Blinken's first stop will be Turkey. His trip will also include Jordan, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Israel, and the occupied West Bank. Jackie Northam, NPR News. Tel Aviv. Former President Donald Trump's businesses received at least $7.8 million in payments from China and other foreign governments while he was in office. That's according to documents obtained from Trump's accounting firm and released by House Democrats. Here's NPR's Eric McDaniel. The largest payment was $5.3 million in rent from a Chinese state-owned bank on a Trump Tower lease initiated years before he declared his presidential candidacy. The Democratic report documents payments to Trump's companies by a total of 20 nations, including Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates. It's illegal for presidents to accept any money from foreign governments without congressional approval, per Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution. Trump says he donated some profits back to the Treasury, though the report's Democratic authors say that doesn't resolve the issue and point to a lack of transparent accounting. Democrats are now calling for legislative reforms to prevent occurrences like this in the future. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, the Capitol. New York City is taking a somewhat novel approach to a recent influx of migrants being bused there from Texas and elsewhere. New York Mayor Eric Adams announcing today the city's suing bus companies that have transported the migrants, seeking more than $700 million in damages. He cites the cost of caring for and sheltering the estimated 33,000 migrants who have arrived in the city since 2022. Evidence of a tight job market, NPR Scott Horsley as more of the latest unemployment claims. 202,000 people applied for jobless aid last week, 18,000 fewer than the week before. Weekly applications for unemployment benefits are seen as an indicator of layoffs, which remain low by historical standards. We'll get a more complete picture of the labor market tomorrow when the government reports on job gains and the unemployment rate for December. New car sales jumped by 12 percent last year, the biggest increase in more than a decade. A strike by auto workers during the fall and costly car loans did little to depress the market. With more cars available, dealers are offering more discounts. The average sales price of a new car in December was down 2.7 percent from the previous year. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 10 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The National Weather Service is warning of a wet snowfall with strong winds moving in for the second half of this coming weekend. It's issued a winter storm watch north and west of Boston from Saturday afternoon through Sunday night. Outside the I-95 corridor, there could be 6 to 12 inches of snow, maybe less than 6 inches in greater Boston, but it should be a rain-soaked snow with winds as high as 40 miles an hour. That could lead to power outages and dangerous driving conditions, especially on Sunday afternoon. The full forecast is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Today, the Massachusetts Senate has unanimously approved a bill to strengthen a warranty law on the purchase of a wheelchair. 
But as WBR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, some vendors who supply wheelchairs say the measure doesn't address all the issues that users face. When a wheelchair breaks, a repair can take months. The legislation would set time frames for how quickly a broken chair must be assessed and a loaner provided. And it would require a chair's warranty to be at least two years. I think it's absolutely huge. Lynn Horan is a wheelchair user in Holyoke. It puts the companies on notice that the state governments are watching. But the bill received criticism from some wheelchair manufacturers and vendors who say it fails to address issues like funding, preventive maintenance, and reimbursement for repair costs. The House has yet to schedule a vote on the corresponding bill. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The head of Harvard's highest governing body says she has no plans to step down following this week's resignation of University President Claudine Gay. Some Harvard donors have called for senior fellow Penny Pritzker to follow Gay's lead and resign. Pritzker led the search committee that selected Gay to lead Harvard. She is expected to head the search for Gay's replacement as well. And a report from a business resource website shows the number of people who work remotely in Massachusetts has dropped by about 20 percent since the year 2021. According to LLC.org, that's a decrease of 165,000 remote workers, one of the steepest declines in the country. In the city of Boston alone, the number of remote workers has decreased 28 percent in the same time frame. 34 degrees now in the Boston area, cold night down to about 20 for a low. Sunshine tomorrow in the mid-30s. Saturday is looking gray, but Sunday's looking white. Should have about 6 to 12 inches of snowfall well north and west of Boston. Closer to the city, though, there should be a rainy, snowy mix. Careful on the roads on Sunday, especially midday. They could be rough. The storm should move out during the second half of the day on Sunday, then sunshine's ahead for Monday. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Donald Trump started his first presidential campaign riding down a golden escalator. This time, his first campaign rally began with a song. Justice for All, featuring President Donald J. Trump and the J6 Choir. J6, as in January 6th, 2021, the insurrection. The song features voices of alleged Capitol rioters in jail, recorded from the jailhouse, singing the Star Spangled Banner. Three years after the attack on the Capitol, the former president has embraced the rioters, donated money to their supporters, and promised to issue pardons. Trump is also the overwhelming favorite to win the Republican presidential nomination. As NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach reports, the future of the January 6th criminal cases may hinge on the presidential election. Donald Trump calls January 6th defendants patriots and hostages. And he said he'd free them or give them pardons at rallies. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons. He said it in campaign speeches. I will be looking at them very, very seriously for pardons. Very, very seriously. In interviews. And I mean full pardons with an apology to to many, an apology. We found that Trump has said he would free or issue pardons for January 6th defendants more than a dozen times, including on social media, where he reposted a message that, quote, the cops should be charged and the protesters should be freed. 
Trump has said those pardons would come on day one of another Trump presidency. But he's been vague about exactly whom he would pardon, and the Trump campaign did not respond to my questions. Here's Trump on Fox News with Brett Bayer last year. Would you also pardon the people who were convicted of assaulting officers? Well, you also have, uh, no, we'd look at individual cases, but many of those people are very innocent people. They did nothing wrong. That scream is from a police officer being crushed by rioters wielding a stolen police shield on January 6th. The officer's gas mask is ripped off, his mouth bloodied, screaming in pain. That officer's name is Daniel Hodges. I was assaulted many times throughout the day. I was beaten, punched, kicked, pushed, beaten with my own riot baton in the head, crushed with a police shield. Someone tried to gouge out one of my eyes. Hodges is among the 140 police officers who were injured on January 6th. He said he could only speak for himself, not his police department, but he feels a moral obligation to keep talking about January 6th to counter the lies from Trump and his supporters. Hodges' physical injuries have healed, but his heart still races when he thinks about that day. It doesn't help that he gets death threats when he talks about January 6th or testifies in court. There was uh, people sending me, like, explicit snuff of suicides. and Like videos of people killing themselves, they yeah, said. It yeah, yeah. And, like, pictures of my head pasted on top of instructions for how to strangle yourself. At times, Trump has signaled he would free every January 6th defendant which would include those convicted of assaulting police. He has also not ruled out pardoning the leader of the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, who was convicted of seditious conspiracy and sentenced to 22 years in prison. Trump heading into the 2024 election has decided to go all in as the pro-January 6th candidate. This is Tom Jocelyn. He's a counterterrorism expert, and he worked as a senior staffer with the January 6th Select Committee in Congress. He's gone full steam ahead in praising and, in his own way, endorsing the January 6 rioters and extremists who attacked the Capitol. The director of the FBI, who was appointed by Trump, called January 6th an act of domestic terrorism. And the attack led to the largest FBI investigation in American history. Now, three years later, around 900 people have pleaded guilty or been convicted at trial of crimes from that day, from simply breaching the building to assaulting police, bringing guns onto Capitol grounds, and seditious conspiracy. If Trump wins, he could use the pardon power to end ongoing prosecutions in these cases, free people from prison, and restore gun rights to hundreds of rioters convicted of felonies. Do you think Trump issuing these pardons could actually encourage further political violence? Certainly, by pardoning an untold number of people who committed violent acts, the likelihood of more violence certainly goes up. Special counsel Jack Smith has been watching Trump's comments and wants to use Trump's support for the rioters against him in court. Smith has argued that Trump's words show that he intended to use illegal means to overturn the 2020 election. Trump is fighting the charges, and it's unclear when that trial will move forward. If Trump wins this year's election, he has promised to use the government to get revenge on his political enemies and to act as a, quote, dictator on his first day in office. And legally, Congress and the courts have almost no way to stop him from issuing pardons. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a historian with New York University. She says the pardon power has been used by strongmen leaders throughout modern history to enable political violence. The purpose of the pardon is both to make people feel they're going to get away with past crimes, but just as scary is that it's designed to make future violence more possible because people will feel they won't pay any consequences. President Biden has condemned Trump's promise as a threat to democracy. Here he is at a rally in 2022. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy. 
You can't support law enforcement and call the mob that attacked the police in January 6th in the United States Capitol patriots. But Trump's message has gained traction among Republican voters, especially in far-right media where defendants are called political prisoners. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Outside the D.C. jail, where many of the alleged rioters have been detained, supporters gather almost every night. With liberty and justice for all. The group reads names of the people currently locked up. It's a list that includes people charged with assaulting police with a deadly weapon and seditious conspiracy. Regardless of the charges, this group chants hero after each name. Andrew Taki, Enrique Torrio, Curtis Tate, George Tenney. The gathering is just around a dozen people, but they have influence. Trump himself actually called into the vigil back in 2022. One of the men currently inside the D.C. jail is Jacob Lang. Mind if I record our conversation? Yes, no problem. Okay, great. I'm recording. Uh, Lang has been awaiting trial for years on charges that he attacked officers with a bat and stolen police shield. He's pleaded not guilty and has become a cause celeb in right-wing media. Even after more than two years in jail, Lang is all in on Trump, and he likes Trump's pledge to issue pardons. Well, it's a beautiful pledge. Um, I think it, but he said he wants Trump to commit to a blanket pardon, the kind that would free him, too. No Jan 6 are left behind. Bring us all home, Donald Trump. Bring us all home. For Officer Daniel Hodges, a blanket pardon would mean freeing the men convicted of assaulting him. So I asked him what he thought about Trump's promise. I mean, I hope some people would get pardoned and think, well, that was close. I'm going to stay as far away from, you know, inflammatory politics as I can from now on. But I think that typically a lack of consequences emboldens criminals. I see that in the community that I police. Since January 6th, some defendants have expressed remorse for their actions and denounced Trump. Others have gone deeper into white nationalism, conspiracy theories, and extremism. One defendant told me that when the FBI arrested him for storming the Capitol, they made an enemy. When a jury announced his guilty verdict, he yelled, this is how you radicalize people. For now, he's still in jail. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. About 40 million adults in the U.S. have trouble hearing, including me. But most of them do not use hearing aids. This means they're missing out on more than just good hearing. They may also be putting themselves at heightened risk of everything from depression to dementia. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports on surprising new research that finds wearing hearing aids may even boost longevity. Dr. Janet Choi was born with hearing loss, but for years she resisted wearing hearing aids because her hearing was very good in one ear. Then, when she became a surgeon, she realized she was missing out. In the operating room doing surgery sometimes, if someone talks to me on the left side when there are a lot of background noise, I usually wouldn't respond because I didn't hear it. And people thought that I was just ignoring them, which was actually not true. I just didn't hear them. Choi was well aware of the risks associated with hearing loss, and she knew the evidence was piling up. Social isolation, depression, also decreased physical activity, and now there have been a lot of studies talking about dementia. With so much at stake, Choi has become a regular user of her hearing aids, and she's also at the forefront of new research. On the heels of a study showing that the use of hearing aids may help stave off cognitive decline, she and her collaborators wanted to know if hearing aids may also be linked to a longer lifespan. To evaluate this, they tracked the status of nearly 1,900 adults who'd been shown to have hearing loss during screenings and who had tracked their use of hearing aids. 
What they found, she says, was surprising. One thing that we were surprised was that the group of patients who have hearing loss and report that they were using hearing aids regularly had 24% lower risks of mortality compared to those groups who never used hearing aids. Meaning they were significantly less likely to die prematurely. Prior studies have shown that hearing loss, if untreated, is associated with multiple health problems. And this adds to the evidence that restoring hearing is beneficial. The study does not prove cause and effect. It could be that people who become regular users of hearing aids are more likely to stave off isolation and stay more active, which could explain the longevity boost. Given the benefits, Choi says it's stunning how few people wear hearing aids regularly. In our study, we found that the rates of hearing aid use was about 12%. And she says another striking finding is that the people in the study who had hearing aids but did not use them regularly were as likely to die prematurely as the never users, pointing to the importance of habitual use. She recommends new users wear them every day for 30 consecutive days to acclimate. Hearing loss, such as invisible problem and it happens gradually that it takes time for you to get used to hearing aids and then get benefit from it. So Choi says if you have hearing aids sitting in the back of your drawer not using them due to stigma or maybe just the annoyance of getting used to them, try them again. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in business news starting at 6.30, for the first time, most online shoppers bought Christmas gifts on their mobile phones rather than on desktops. A look at mobile spending and how it changes what we buy coming up on Marketplace. On Wall Street, the Dow picked up just a tiny percent today. S&P and NASDAQ wound up on the downside. S&P fell more than three-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ closed lower for a fifth day. It was down more than a half percent. Cambridge Biotech Omega Therapeutics is teaming up with Danish pharmaceutical giant Novo Nordisk. The project involves using the body's own mechanisms to boost metabolism to help treat obesity. The deal is worth up to $532 million. Omega shares closed more than 94% higher on the news today. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. We've got a clear and cold night ahead tonight, falling to about 20. Sunny tomorrow in the mid-30s, and then snow is in the forecast for the weekend. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce tells us this will not be a major snowstorm for Boston, but it will have an impact. Snow arrives Saturday night. A few snow showers possible ahead of that. The height of the storm Sunday morning through midday before everything tapers off the second half of Sunday as the storm pulls away. We'll see a mix with and change over to rain in the city of Boston and at the coast. The rain snow line likely to set up somewhere along the 128 or 495 belt. North and west of that, the highest totals, around or more than six inches possible. Less than that, more like a few inches or less closer to the coast. Mainly rain event on the South Shore and Cape, some wind gusts to 40 miles per hour at the coast. Biggest impacts, tough travel Sunday and isolated outages where the heaviest snow falls. 34 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR at 621. 
WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Bill Clinton likes them young. That is just one of many allegations contained in several hundred pages of recently released court documents in a case brought against the sex trafficker and private financier Jeffrey Epstein. One of Epstein's victims says he made those remarks about the former president to her. The documents were unsealed late yesterday in a lawsuit brought by one of those victims. Besides former President Clinton, who has not been accused of anything and who denies knowledge of Epstein's illegal activities, the documents include the names of dozens of powerful men with alleged connections to Epstein. Donald Trump, magician David Copperfield, Prince Andrew, and former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak are also named. Most of those publicly named, many of whom are already known to have links to Epstein, have denied any wrongdoing or knowledge of Epstein's criminal activities. Epstein died by suicide in prison in 2019. I'm joined now by investigative journalist and author Julie K. Brown. Her reporting for the Miami Herald in 2017 and 2018 led to more charges for Epstein and identified nearly 80 of his victims. And before we begin, I want to make something clear. The fact that people were named in these documents doesn't mean any of them face allegations or evidence of wrongdoing. They are identified as having social connections to Jeffrey Epstein. Julie K. Brown joins me now. Welcome. Thank you. Have you been in touch with any of Epstein's victims? And do you know at all how they're feeling in this moment with this latest release? Well, I know that they want the truth to come out. Um, They feel that this has been um, hidden for too long. And certainly part of the uh, mechanism in our system that has hidden a lot of what has transpired is our court system. I mean, there are people out there, Julie, who are probably saying, we already know this. There is not anything new here. But I gather that you would argue that it's important for these documents to be public, that it's important for people to see what is in it. Why is that? Well, you know, define new. No, there's nothing in here that says so-and-so committed a crime or so-and-so actually had sex with a certain person. But these are people that clearly knew what Jeffrey Epstein was doing. They were either socially connected with him. In in a couple of cases, we know of people that even talked openly about the fact that they knew Epstein was recruiting girls. Now, does that mean that they were guilty of anything? No. But I think to dismiss this because there's nothing salacious or criminal in it is really short-sighted. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that this case and Epstein's convictions stemmed from him victimizing young girls, children. But his crimes and these documents are also about relationships among rich and powerful people in our society. Can you explain how those very relationships may have helped him prey on his victims? He was a bit of a braggart. I mean, we suspect that he may not have known some of the people that he claimed Uh, to these girls that he knew. He would say, for example, I just got off the phone with 
Michael Jackson or whoever, I'm just using that as an example, he would tell these girls that. And then, of course, they would be in his mansions and they would see photographs of him with world leaders and famous people. So he took advantage of that in order to, if, if nothing else, to intimidate these girls. And that's how he used his status. And anyone that socialized with him and who had dinners with him or visited his islands or went on his airplane had to see him with some of these girls and young women and had to see the way that he operated. We've been following the release of these new documents and there are still more to come. Julie, can you help us look ahead to what might be coming out in the future? This has all been a mystery even to us because they've been sealed for so long. So we really don't know for certain. But one thing that we know from what's been released so far is that these documents do tell a story They tell a story of a man who had influence, who had power, who had money, and he was able to use all those things to abuse hundreds of girls. And we need to to really examine how that happened and why it happened. And because unless we do that, um, these kinds of cases, the sex trafficking that happened here is going to continue to happen. As we mentioned, you have been covering this story for years. What do you think the legacy of the story of Jeffrey Epstein is? Well, I hope the legacy is that people don't accept this kind of justice in America, that that rich people, powerful people, wealthy people should not get special treatment. You know, people who are vulnerable and who don't have a voice in our system are often prosecuted um, more fully and rigorously than people who have power and money. And that really is something that this story is an example of. And I think that, you know, we all have to question how that happens and why it happens and our system needs to change. Miami Herald investigative journalist and author Julie K. Brown. She is the author of Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein story. Julie, thank you. Thank you. A Florida woman is suing the Hershey Company for what she says is false advertising. The reason? On the outside of a seasonal package, a peanut butter cup with a jack-o'-lantern face. But on the inside... But this is a trick. This is not a treat. I thought it would have a face on it. It's just a chocolate blob. Two videos of disappointed consumers that the lawsuit cites. The candies range in shape depending on the holiday. Ghosts, bats, and pumpkins are the Halloween varieties, but some consumers do not see the resemblance. Does this look like a pumpkin to you? Cynthia Kelly, who brought the class action lawsuit, bought the, quote, cute-looking pumpkin peanut butter cups in October, believing that the candy in question would match the outside. She is seeking at least $5 million in damages. Reese's Peanut Butter Pumpkins launched nationally in 1993, but Reese's did not always include the images that you see on packages today. The lawsuit states, quote, in order to boost sales and revenues of the products, Hershey's changed the packaging for the products to include the detailed carvings within the last two to three years. And we reached out to Hershey, who wrote back that they, quote, don't comment on pending litigation. Anthony Russo Jr. is the lawyer representing Kelly in this case. This is just a reality check for these corporations is, hey, you know, you are going to give the consumers what they ask for, whether it's, you know, an etching on a, on a Reese's peanut butter cup or it's, you know, it's a non-defective home that you're living in, what your family's living in. 
His firm is also representing the plaintiffs in a class action suit against Burger King. That one claims the company uses misleading advertising to represent their food items as larger than they are. He says his firm receives around 100 calls a month for these types of cases. Some are a little wacky, to be honest with you. And we probably take, you know, less than 1%. It is yet to be determined if this case against Hershey will make it past a judge. But even if the candies aren't as cute as they look on that packaging, most people agree they still taste pretty good. And the most annoying thing about this is it's quite nice. It's a nice peanut butter little chocolate bar snack. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins are on garden ice tonight as they host Pittsburgh. Today, Caleb Porter officially took over as coach of the New England Revolution. Porter previously led pro soccer teams in Oregon and South Carolina, and he says he thinks New England ultimately can win a major league soccer championship. I wouldn't have taken the job unless I felt we could win an MLS Cup here. And obviously you say that that's the vision, but there's a long process to get there. Over my nine years in the league, I've developed a blueprint um, and a process to get there. Porter replaces Bruce Arena, who resigned in the fall. This is WBUR. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, like a rolling stone, and make you feel my love. More at LexisBroadwayInBoston.com.